This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. We are in season nine. I am David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. And I teach at Loyola University Chicago's Institute of Pastoral Studies. I'm here with my friend, Father Dan Haran. He's director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. And I'm also here with my friend, Heidi Schlumpf. She's executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome to you both. I'm glad that you're here. Heidi, how have you been? I've been great. I'm just coming off a weekend where we celebrated our block party here in Chicago. This is a tradition that maybe non-Chicagoans don't know about. We block off our streets. We haul out our grills. We have some beverages, alcoholic and otherwise, and just have a great time as a neighborhood. And since we hadn't been able to do that during the pandemic, it just felt really good to get together with some of my neighbors who I hadn't seen in a while. And it just was a great weekend, good weather and everything. So slowly, but uh, very slowly, it feels some things are getting back to normal, which feels good. How about you, Dan? How are things there in Indiana? Things are pretty good. We had the first big home game. This is the second home game of the Notre Dame football season. And so this was against Purdue, which is not that far away. Because I was not going to the game in any capacity, I and, and two friends and colleagues of mine took a mini road trip across the border to Michigan on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan and went to uh, a brewery and just spent the day escaping the crowds and the tailgaters and, and all that comes with uh, Division One major football. And it was wonderful. So it was nice. You know, it's the last sort of we're in that interesting time here in the Northeast of You've got the end of summer and the beginning of fall, so fluctuations in weather, but a beautiful time. And our listeners who listen right away when this episode drops, as you're listening to this, I, God willing, will be on a flight heading across the Pacific to the island of uh, Hawaii to give a lecture, the Marianist Lecture at Chaminade University, and to receive the Mackey Award in Catholic Thought. So I'm very honored and, and privileged to have that experience and to be with the great people, the Marianist community, the educational communities of Chaminade University and the prep school that they have as well, and the broader community, of course, of Hawaii. So it's work, so it's not a Hawaiian vacation, <laughs> so you don't have to be too jealous of me. It's a lot of travel, but it's going to be a series of, of really great events, and I'm looking forward to that. Hawaii has very strict policies, as you might imagine, as an island when it comes to the vaccine and quarantining and all this kind of stuff. So it's a bit of a hassle, sort of like traveling to Europe these days, but safety first. So looking forward to that and looking forward to sharing how all that goes. And folks who are interested in watching the live stream of the lecture or, or the events, you can go to marinuslecture.com, I believe, or check out Chaminade University. David, what are you up to, man? Well, you're, first of all, congratulations on that award and well-deserved. Your mention of Hawaii makes me think of this. My family and I just got done re-watching the entirety of the television show Lost, and this had a kind of twofold purpose. One, my, my 11-year-old daughter and my 10-year-old son were very interested. We've gotten done watching all the sort of offerings from the Marvel Universe up to this point, and so we were looking around for something else to continue in that same vein, and Lost seemed to work. 
work. But I had a, a second purpose as well in that I've just turned in a proposal for a chapter on an upcoming uh, book on theology and lost, the lost universe that's being uh, published by some folks that do pop culture and theology in a long series. So I don't know whether or not that chapter will get picked up, but I was excited to actually for once have my enjoyment viewing and my scholarship kind of come together. The only thing that could be better is if I were asked to write a, a, a kind of edited volume on the X-Files or something like that. That would be a great joy for me. But, well, maybe we um, can work on that someday in the future. That's... I would love to, <laughs> to think about that. But beyond that, it's turning into fall, which is my favorite time here. Longtime listeners know that I've had some ups and downs with my neurochemistry, and my neurochemistry has been very well balanced lately. And so I'm actually enjoying my, my kind of day-to-day routines and, and getting through activities activities, not having massive crashes into anxiety or depression, which for me is revelatory. It's like living in a completely different universe than the one that I've understood for most of the decades of my adult life. So I'm incredibly grateful for the support that I've received, also grateful for the encouragement that I've gotten from the both of you, but also from our listeners. I just, I'm really enjoying life right now. And it's just wonderful to be able to say that. So I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear that, David, and and congratulations. Congratulations to you for maintaining that. Your mention of Lost made me think of that they were recording this on a Monday and the Emmys were last night. I didn't watch them, but I saw the winners this morning. I was wondering if either of you saw any of your favorites there on the list of winners. I was a big fan of The Crown, so I was excited to see The Crown winning a lot of awards. I was Well, too. Dan, I know that yeah. you were a Ted Lasso fan, if I remember, Dan. I am and continue to be. We're in the midst of, uh, we're coming close to the end of season two. And so Ted Lasso won big and well, well-deserved. If a uh, <laughs> little a self-reference here, I wrote a column last year about Ted Lasso and NCR that, yeah, I, it's, it's just a truly wonderful show. The only downside, of course, is that it's on a streaming service that not so many people have, which is Apple TV. But Apple TV is is between that program and I just recently started watching The Morning Show that stars Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell. It's a really amazing show. It's very difficult to watch at times. It's basically a Me Too movement story that takes place in a kind of the Today Show, Matt Lauer sort of environment, but the writing and the acting and stuff is great. All that is to say that Apple TV is is coming for Netflix and for the uh, the cable channels, and so get ready. But if you have an opportunity to watch Ted Lasso, absolutely do it. You don't have to be a soccer fan. Uh, in fact, it's better if you don't know anything about it. It's just as enjoyable. But yeah, they won a number of awards. That was great to see. There were, the Crown was really great to see, get the recognition um, it deserved. There were a couple others as well that I was, I thought it was a pretty good, in terms of shows that I like anyways, a good representation. Well, the ones that I was excited to see when I was a big fan of The Queen's Gambit, and that's really not a show for everybody, but it was a show that really, coming from a, a family with a lot of substance abuse and a lot of miscommunication and broken relationships, that was a very meaningful show for me. Also, was just happy to see John Oliver's Last Week Tonight pick up some good recognition as well. So, yeah, I, I wasn't displeased with any of the winners, but most of the shows that did win were ones that I haven't been following. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I was happy to see as well. I mean, John Oliver, I think it was the seventh consecutive Emmy for that category. I'm a big fan of that program. I I, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. It was interesting, too, to see there were some predictable ones like uh, Stephen Colbert also won again. And I think especially during the pandemic, his late night show did a really great job adjusting. Another limited series that got a lot of awards that I loved, I know my parents also watched and a number of my friends watched, which was Mayor of Easttown. Just extraordinary show. Another heavy show to be sure, but great. Another show that I really liked that I had some friends who watched who didn't care for it as much, but I really enjoyed was Hacks, which is another HBO show starring Jean Smart. She got a lot of attention this year because of her role in in both Hacks and Mayor of Easttown. She was extraordinary in both. I enjoy Hacks because I love stand-up comedy and in the kind of comedy industry. I like listening to the Mark Marin podcast and, and hearing the stories behind the scenes of SNL and other places. And to see a, a very female forward set of actors was really great in Hacks. So Jean Smart's the main character, but it's, it centers around her life and her kind of world. So yeah, great shows. Yeah. 
My one disappointment from the Emmys was a show that my family really loved, WandaVision, seemed to get passed over a lot. And I really thought that WandaVision was a really amazing meditation on grief, and particularly grief from the female perspective. It's rare to see a show that's centered that way and centered in that kind of narrative space. And so I would have loved to have seen that get more awards. I just noticed this year that because I think because of the pandemic, some of us were watching more television and streaming shows than usual. So I was particularly interested in the award winners. And in general, like you guys agreed that some really quality shows were recognized. I, I will also say, too, I think this is well-deserved, though. I have mixed feelings from a personal perspective about the program itself, which was Bo Burnham's quasi-comedy, quasi-pandemic special called Inside, which he wrote, directed, produced, acted, wrote all of the things. Absolutely impressive, both for its range and the subject matter and for his sheer talent and be able to do, do, do all this during the pandemic in his garage, it seemed, or some single room in the house. But I have to confess that the first time I watched it, I couldn't get all the way through it. It was just too soon and too heavy. He deals with a lot of issues of anxiety and isolation and depression, particularly set within the context of the pandemic. And so in the middle of the pandemic still, when it was released, I marveled at it. I thought it was great. And I've heard nothing but positive things. And so I think it's well-deserved. But yeah, just a kind of trigger warning for folks who watch it. It's funny, but also deeply moving and causes a lot of introspection and reflection. So check it out when you're ready. Well, we're going to go ahead and, and get started with the show. Today, we're going to be picking up three topics. We're going to be looking at the upcoming synod on synodality. We're going to be looking at U.S. policy towards the Haitian migrants that are there at our southern border. And we're going to welcome a guest in our third segment, Christopher White, who has just become Vatican correspondent in Rome for National Catholic Reporter, is going to be talking to us about his first press junket on the recent papal trip to Hungary and Slovakia. So we're looking forward to getting into all of that. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Pope Francis and the dicastery responsible for organizing the synods of bishops for the Catholic Church announced months ago that the next theme to be taken up by the bishops of the world was synodality itself. While the formal gathering of bishops and appointed representatives from around the world is scheduled to meet in Rome in fall of 2023, the Pope outlined an innovative three-year process that not only focuses on synodality in the abstract, but also practices synodality at all levels of the universal church. Beginning this year, local dioceses, bishops' conferences, and regional and continental gatherings are set to start taking place. The idea is that synodality is primarily about walking together. Therefore, consultation of all the people of God in each level of the church is the best way to, pun intended, walk the walk and not just talk the talk. One of the phrases that the Vatican has used to describe this broad consultation is, quote, one listening to the others and all listening to the Holy Spirit, unquote. This is a profoundly theological statement, which presupposes the sensus fidelium, or the sense of the faithful, that reflects the collective community of the baptized as capable of recognizing and receiving the revelation of God in the Spirit. This is not a charism or gift reserved only for the ordained or religious, but is shared by all the baptized. The three-year process of consultation, listening, and accompaniment begins on October 9th and 10th, when Pope Francis is scheduled to officially open the worldwide synodal path at the Vatican with a special prayer service and the celebration of the Eucharist. In anticipation of this quickly approaching launch of the synodal process, the General Secretariat for the Synod recently released a preparatory document and a vatamecum, or guide for the journey, to assist local dioceses in launching this process. Dan, you're a theologian and someone who's written both about the Holy Spirit and the importance of Pope Francis's vision of synodality in the Church. How are you thinking about the next Synod of Bishops and the three-year process the Vatican has outlined? Well, in a word, I'm excited. 
I think it's very exciting. I think it's something that the church is in desperate need. And it's something that those of us in the context of the United States, we're probably the most unfamiliar or I would say shocked by what's being laid out here. You've seen this, of course, in the right-wing trolls and, and punditry and pundit class and blogs where they reject synodality as some kind of modern or postmodern, pseudo-democratic, quasi-communist. You know, there's all kinds of weird descriptors, but something that isn't quote-unquote orthodox or, or officially of the church. The truth is, this goes back, uh, it arises out of the Second Vatican Council, it goes way back to the earliest days of the church, when there was this understanding, of course, that the Spirit speaks to all the baptized. Each baptized person has, in Latin, what we call the census fide, which is like, you might think of it as, as within our soul, a kind of radio that can attune itself if we have well-formed consciences and we're aware of it, if we are focused on it, in the way that God is speaking to women and men in the world today. And when we gather all that together, when the church receives this teaching and the movement of the Spirit, we call that the census fidelium, as you mentioned, David. And so what's really striking to me, what makes this so exciting is that Pope Francis really gets it. And what we see play out here is not something new at all, but a return to the origins of the church itself, which is that Pentecost moment of the Holy Spirit speaking to all the people in various languages and all people receiving this inspiration. So where we go together, this synodality, this walking together is really telling. It's not monarchical. It's neither monarchical nor democratic. This isn't a matter of voting. It's a matter of walking together, discerning together, and listening to the Holy Spirit. So I've got some technical questions to ask about this. Here in the United States, we've had some back and forth about, you know, the Pope has made some corrections to things like the catechism, and there's been pushback to say, well, but he's pushing against the kind of magisterial truth. I think that there's real confusion about how the Pope fits into the magisterium. I'm not asking that question, but I'm asking that as a background to say, how does synodality and particularly the census fidelium fit into this idea of the magisterium and magisterial teaching? It's a great question and one where I would encourage people to take some theology classes from us, David, because it's more than we can say really in a, in a 20-minute segment here. I'll try my best to summarize. You know, there, there are two ways, and, and here I rely on the great modeling of the ecclesiologist, uh, Dr. Richard Gallardi of Boston College, you know, probably one of the foremost ecclesiologists alive today. In one of his books on authority in the church, you know, talked about this in, in really accessible language. He said, Certainly from the Council of Trent until Vatican II, there was this top-down, unidirectional understanding of teaching authority. Basically, the bishops speak and the people receive. But that actually is not the most ancient or the most sort of orthodox understanding of how church teaching develops and how obedience to church teaching is called for among the faithful. And it's much more secular. So if you think of it as a kind of a cycle, a circle that begins with the Holy Spirit's presence constantly drawing near to all the people of God. And through baptism, we have this gift in communion of being able to receive what we call revelation, that is the gift of God's self, right? Recognizing how God is calling the whole church to move. That gets expressed in various ways. We see this most often in liturgy, where in local areas, you know, whether it's the canonization of saints, whether it's theological declarations in the early church about the divinity of Christ or the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the like, you see these sort of movements among the people, among the faithful, among the worshiping community. That then is received by those who are in leadership, the bishops, the priests, the theologians of the church. They receive that and they try to make sense of it, right? And so they take that information in and they analyze it and they study it and, and reflect on it and engage it with the tradition and with scripture. And then they express it, they articulate it. And that's where the magisterial teaching comes in, whether at the local level in terms of a bishop making a document for that local diocese whether it's the Second Vatican Council for the Universal Church or the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, who has a particular responsibility and charism to do that on behalf of the whole church, that's then presented, and then that cycle continues where the people of God receive that. So the census fidelium is dynamic, it's fluid, and it's walking, working together. That's what synodal means. And, and it's really all about the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a really hard time understanding how this works. 
Dan, you said you're very excited about this upcoming three-year process, and I would say I'm guardedly excited as well. I think when a cynic journalist yeah, you are, <laughs> so I think when you look at what synodality really is, and you described it well, Dan, and we also at NCR had a really great interview with an expert on synodality, Rafael Luciani. He was uh, interviewed by uh, Hoffman Espino. And really, when you read that description of what synodality really is, I think it's something that the Catholics can get very excited about. However, <laughs> there are some uh, caveats to my enthusiasm. So number one is that I think that anything that's about a process, and especially a long, involved process like this one, is going to be confusing sometimes to everyday Catholics and also difficult to try to keep people's interest in. So we have the local events that are supposed to be starting in October. One of our writers is right now researching to try to report on how that's actually unfolding here on the ground in the United States. But our sense is that they're a little bit behind. So a lot of folks are not aware of how to actually contribute to this process as of yet. In addition, there are some controversial issues that have come up, namely the inclusion of women and whether women will have a voting voice at the actual synod of bishops. So the inclusion of a woman, Sister Natalie Beckwart, as undersecretary in the Vatican Synod office had some people thinking that this might be a move towards women having more of a voice at the synod, even a voting voice. But at the press conference where they were releasing the document, someone asked that question directly, and there was uh, a reluctance to answer. So we haven't gotten the no on that yet, but people are following that closely. Well, and we have some precedents too, right? So things don't, you know, I think some people might wake up and, and hear about this and think this is all novel, but this has been developing even over the last seven or eight years with the more more recent synods of bishops. So for instance, on the two-year, I think it was 2013-2014 synods on the family, there was broader consultation. The churches, you know, wasn't as formal as it is in this case. But there were questionnaires that were sent out to different bishops and to dioceses and to bishops' conferences. Different places handled that differently. That's true also with the Synod on Young Adults in 2018, that you know global consultation was expected. Now, I have to be direct, and this is going to be where I'm the Debbie Downer here, or where I'm the cynic in this case, which is it's it's not just the United States, but the United States is not good at this. I remember, for instance, in, in the buildup to the Synod on Young Adults in 2018, I was in New Zealand and I had breakfast one morning with one of the bishops of New Zealand who was talking about these meetings, these regular meetings they were having with young adults. And he said something that was one of the most moving things I've seen and heard from a bishop in a long time, which is that he said he knew he was one of the delegates appointed by the Vatican, one of the bishop voting members of the Synod. And he said, I will, in my intervention, because they each get three minutes from the floor, he said, I have one thing that I keep hearing our young people say, and that is we as a church need to be attentive to the mental health crises of people today and in our world. And that was not something you'd hear very often from bishops or, or from church leaders. And, and that arose, as he was sharing with me, precisely because he was listening around the country to what young people were saying, to what the Spirit was speaking to them about. So I think that's really important. I also think we've seen before the last synod as well with the Amazon, there was um, a change to the rules who have right of voice and who have right of vote. So Heidi, to your point, this goes back actually to Morris Letizia too, or the synods before that, which women do have right of voice if they are delegates and experts at the synod. The question is, as you rightly put, it's a matter of right of vote. And at this point, for the longest time, it was bishops. It was extended to clergy more broadly who were appointed as delegates. And there was this interesting twist that, that they started to include non-ordained brothers. So now we're at the point where ordination category isn't actually what's the clerical state isn't what's at question. And so there's no reason, for instance, that religious women wouldn't also be granted permission to have right of vote in addition to their already existing right of voice if they are experts or consultants or delegates. I want to ask a follow-on on that in the in your characterization of the process of consultation. I'm thinking about my experience when I was in the Nashville diocese and there was 
the Synod on the Family, and a questionnaire was promulgated that basically was word for word the theological questionnaire that the bishops would have gotten. I have a couple of degrees in theology. I found it really difficult to understand the questions that were being asked and to parse them out, let alone answer them. So there was no attempt to actually translate what was being asked for at the highest levels into language that laypersons would understand. And I think that this is—my impression was that this was intentional on the part of the bishops to try and obfuscate and make less clear the process of consultation. But I'm wondering, that. so that's my cynicism. As I say that to the two of you, does that track with your own experience and observation? It does. Generally speaking, the U.S., as I mentioned earlier, is more reluctant as a whole, but we see that with the internal strife of the USCCB. So that should not be surprising to us who follow this stuff closely. But it varied, you know, back in 2012, 2013, 2014, and in the more recent synods, Bishop McElroy of of the Diocese of San Diego held a diocesan-wide synod where there was very profound consultation, engagement, listening, sharing. I think of Archbishop Gustavo down in San Antonio, Texas. He oftentimes, as part of their annual diocesan conference or archdiocesan conference, will have a synodal process where people are in working groups on themes and will surface questions directly to the bishops. So it varies, but I think as a rule, we are not, as a bishop's conference in the United States, as good as some of the others around the globe. Well, and I would just add that even the terminology of synod and synodality is not something that everyday Catholics may be real familiar with. So I think we're going to hear a lot about synods and synodality in the next couple of years because of this universal process. But as Dan mentioned, there have been diocesan synods. We have the synodal way happening in Germany, and that's been much debated about that synodal process, which is, in my understanding, not technically part of this three-year process, but will probably inform it in some way. There was just a meeting uh, a week or so ago called the Root and Branch Synod that happened in England, and I found it interesting that a bit of critique about the Synod on Synodality and the process after the document was released, some of that critique came from conservative Catholics who didn't like that um, among the people being consulted would not just be practicing Catholics, but people who were away from the faith or even people of other faiths would be consulted. It was this broad consultation. So you had this critique from the right. Well, at this root and branch synod, We had former Ireland president Mary McAleese coming from a very left uh, progressive position critiquing the synodal process in advance and saying that she didn't think it was going to be very effective because she didn't think that everyday lay Catholics would have enough of a voice because the process does go through the bishop's conference. So maybe that's a good sign that both sides are critiquing the process already, and I am content to sit back and wait and see and trust the Holy Spirit to see what does come out of it. I think it's a that's a very generous way to read it. <laughs> I mean, part of my frustration is as a theologian, as somebody who has thought and taught and researched about some of these subjects for years, it is frustrating that you're exactly right, Heidi, that so many people don't know about this. I don't expect your average Roman Catholic in the pew, as it were, to know some of these things. These are technical terms, and they're generally unfamiliar. I do like the idea that they will become more household terms, and and as a result, God willing, of this synod and the synodal process of the next three years. But I think the thing that I get most frustrated with are my brother priests and religious and bishops who say a lot of things that are just simply untrue. And I think we see that you know, fueled a bit by, as you mentioned earlier, what's going on in Germany and other places, where if you actually let the people of God speak, you have to listen to what they say, and you don't get to be in the driver's seat controlling how the Holy Spirit's communicating through our sisters and brothers. And so, you know, I saw that as well in uh, the lead up to the Young Adult Synod, In 2018, people have heard me say this before, the document from March 2018, where you had 300 young adults who, as you mentioned a second ago, Heidi, also included people who were disaffiliated from the church or from other traditions because they wanted to hear what young adults around the globe thought and felt about the church and what the church could do and so forth. And so, you know, I think that's 
fully in keeping with Nostra Aetate and the church's teaching of Vatican II and our openness to the work of the Spirit in all people. But for those who want to be in the driver's seat, who don't believe in the Holy Spirit or try to suppress it, who want to be in control, and I'm thinking of some of our brothers who are in leadership positions, this is very threatening and very scary. So I think we do need to brace ourselves for a reactionary move, but I'm still excited, maybe a little cautionarily excited, as you said, too, you know, a cautious optimism. But I think it's a good thing. It's at least great to see on the agenda. Well, as the Synod and the Synod on Synods unfolds, we will be here to talk about it and to raise questions about it. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, as you regular listeners know, we get together to talk about news and events and all sorts of subjects through the lens of our shared Catholic faith. In 2010, the island nation of Haiti suffered an absolutely devastating earthquake. That event triggered an ongoing flow of Haitians fleeing the country in search of safety, stability, and greater economic opportunities. Over this past decade, many of these Haitians have attempted to enter the United States through Mexico. In July of this year, the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated. In August, the country suffered another major earthquake. This has caused many Haitians, both in the country as well as expatriates, to feel that the nation is too unstable to be safe. As a result, record numbers of migrants have been gathering in the past few weeks on the border between Mexico and Texas, with many taking various measures to try and cross the Rio Grande River and reach U.S. soil. On Sunday of this week, the U.S. began the process of flying Haitians camped in a Texas border town back to their homeland. In a massive show of force, the U.S. border agents also blocked others from crossing the border from Mexico. The United States plans to begin seven expulsion flights daily beginning this Wednesday, the day this podcast is released, and when asked by reporters, U.S. officials responded that no migrants would be allowed to seek asylum. This amounts to one of the largest scale expulsions of migrants or refugees in decades. The United Nations Declaration on Human Rights declares that every human being has the right to seek asylum. Moreover, in 1963, Pope John XXIII declared, quote, Every human being has the right to freedom of movement and of residence within the confines of his or her country, and when there are just reasons for it, the right to emigrate to other countries and take up residence there, unquote. David, what are we to make of this terrible situation? Well, first of all, I just want to state a position that I think is shared by you both, and that is People who are in desperate need should have the ability to travel to places where they are safe. And if we're going to be a country that declares itself to be the greatest and the richest and the most wonderful and the most idealistic country in the world, then we should live up to those ideals by actually welcoming asylum seekers and welcoming people who are in harm's way and not making them have to go back into situations of danger. So I'm with Pope John Twenty-Third. I'm with the UN Declaration on Human Rights. To me, it's a no-brainer that we shouldn't be airlifting migrants and refugees and asylum seekers from our borders and putting them right back into harm's way and putting them back into situations that they have worked so hard with their families and others to flee. I don't understand U.S. policy on this particular point. I could see the I could see the Trump administration doing this in a heartbeat. I have more difficulty seeing the Biden administration doing it. And yet here's the evidence that we are. So I'm that's part of what I'm trying to figure out right now is what is the fundamental difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration on this particular point of asylum seekers and migrants? I think that we really need to press the administration to to push for a greater differentiation between those two regimes. But I'm interested in what you two think. Well, I agree with you, David, that it's especially discouraging to see under the administration of our second Catholic president, this really inhumane policy of loading people on planes and sending them back to a country that isn't prepared to accept them. And for many of them have not lived in that country for a number of years. So a lot of people left after the initial earthquake and and 
migrated to South America where they were looking for jobs. And then because the jobs have dried up down there, have headed north. So I I read this morning, Monday, as we're uh, taping this, that the Haitian government was indicating it might not even be able to feed the people who are being transported back there. So this seems a pretty clear-cut humanitarian issue. And as a human being, and certainly as a Catholic and as a Christian, I would like to see Biden reevaluate what they're doing here. We just had Pope Francis, who has been very repetitive on this issue of the need to welcome people, especially people whose lives are really in danger and who are suffering so much. We should be welcoming those strangers. And in his papal trip, when he was in Eastern Europe, in Hungary and Slovakia, he repeated this again about the need to welcome people in our borders. So it is very discouraging. And you just cannot imagine a country more suffering than Haiti in terms of the amount of poverty, now the political instability, and then on top of it, these natural disasters in the earthquake. So of all places to be sending folks back, it it really just breaks my heart. I also can't help but think about the racial implications that are involved, that these are Black women and men and children who are being immediately thrown out of the country. David, I was struck by your comment about imagining, you know, you could see the Trump administration doing this. And and famously, of course, we, we recall former President Trump using this diabolical language referring to asshole countries, Haiti being one of them. And so there's clear racial overtones. And you know, I don't know what to make of this. We see this already with the way that Latinx uh, folks are treated at the, at our southern border in particular, or under the previous presidential administration, the way that Syrian refugees, when they were likewise fle- fleeing absolutely horrendous circumstances, the refusal to welcome them. The one sort of silver lining I've seen so far is that the Biden administration seems to be more responsive to the obligations we owe our Afghani friends and and allies who have risked their lives, you know, the citizens of Afghanistan who were interpreters for our military and for NGOs and the like. So there seemed to have been some momentum around there. But I worry that, again, because of the overt racist implications of the way that foreign policy and domestic policy is, is decided, that there is less of a... Uh, an appetite, alas, of uh, a degree of sympathy or empathy for our sisters and brothers from Haiti who are in desperate need. I don't understand why now, especially after that second earthquake and the absolute political instability of the government in, of Haiti right now, I, I don't understand what the urgency is. I, I can't quite figure that out. David, do you have thoughts on this? Well, I, I do. And part of it has to do with a narrative that we keep telling ourselves here in America. And the narrative is, well, if only these people would just go through the proper channels, then we would allow them to come in if they would just follow the law and if they would just do it the right way. Uh, a number of years ago here in Chicago, I produced a documentary for the Chicago public broadcasting station, WTTW, about the immigration crisis and about families that were divided by our broken immigration law. And one of the things that I heard again and again from the experts was there is no path anymore for people like this to actually get in line and do it, quote, the right way, unquote. We've made it either illegible or impossible for them to find the way to do this. And as we've said in this conversation, the desperation is there right now. So asking a person to go back and queue up at the back of a line when the line actually doesn't lead anywhere is adding insult to real grievous injury that's happening right now. And yet, if you listen to right-wing media and if you talk to people in your families, this is the this is what you'll hear again and again. Well, I have a friend who came here the right way, maybe talking about somebody that came here 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Why can't they just do it the right way? And the answer is that previous administrations have basically made the right way disappear. There is no more path to even coming into the country as an asylum seeker in the way that there was even 10, 15 years ago. And and again, this is not just my expertise, but the expertise of people that work on immigration law that I've interviewed, people that work on migrant resettlements across the sphere, not just secular, but also evangelical organizations. They're all saying the same thing. It's not just that the system is broken. It's that every single avenue towards actual asylum and protection right now is closed. And that's something that we need to address and deal with and start changing the narrative on. Yes. And then just to add the irony of 
the fact that there are so many lower paying and somewhat unskilled jobs that are going unfilled right now in the United States that, you know, you have middle class people complaining that when they go to a restaurant or go other places that they aren't getting, you know, the service that they want because those some of those businesses are having a hard time finding employees to hire in the aftermath or the continuing coronavirus. And so to turn away people who are willing to come to this country and want to work hard to help their families do better is ironic and painful. You know, last week I was celebrating the news that a federal judge had reversed or tried to reverse the Title 42 policy under the Trump administration that gave another reason to turn people away at the border because of the coronavirus. And so with that judge's order, I thought, okay, well, finally, we're going to have some positive news here on the immigration front. But now to find out that following that, the Biden administration is appealing that. So again, I think we could see better leadership from our Catholic president on this issue. And I'd like to see our church leaders who have been pretty solid in speaking up about the rights of immigrants to, to take up this issue as well. It's interesting. I, I, there are those who are advocating on the ground. I'm thinking of the of Network, the social justice lobby. I know they're working on lobbying and putting together some some statements that reflect exactly what we're discussing here, that the Catholic perspective is plain and simple, that you know, this is unjust. This is not okay. And I think it's a good reminder. I think it's important for us to step back, especially after four years of really rank and overt discrimination, violence, hatred, vitriol coming from the Trump administration, who, you know, was very clear, very overt about their xenophobia and racism and the policies that flow from that, that, you know, no sides are are immune from, you know, criticism. And I think that this is an example where President Biden, both as a Catholic, I think personally, we need to appeal to a well-formed conscience in the role that he has in leadership, but also, you know, independent of his particular religious tradition, that this is not who we say we are. You know, we go back to 2017 and the Muslim bans and the protests at the airports. I'd like to see a similar sort of thing uh, play out. And I, again, I do realize we have the constraints of the pandemic, health and safety concerns to be had. But I do know that there are some organizations like Network and others that, that are working to try to bring this kind of attention to a broader public. I think that we also need to point out as persons of faith that we've had a regime for the past 30 years where capital and economic resources can move very porously across borders in North America, but bodies can't. And that, that allows for the possibility of really extracting wealth from nations and leaving real human bodies behind to suffer the consequences of that. Whether we're talking about resources or economics or goods, we're talking about a real disjunction, a real kind of lack of, of coherence between the way that we treat the, the kind of economic capital and the, the human dignity that should go along with economic capital. And, and this, to me, I think is something where, you know, I'm, I recognize that the southern border of the United States is a very complex question. But for me, when, there is a, when there's a hungry family that's there on the border, there is no question. You find a way to take care of those people. You find a way to make sure that those people are safe. If we truly are are the greatest country in the world. And if we truly do want to have that greatness be understood by the rest of the world, then we can't have a greatness in our aloofness. We can't have a greatness in terms of our cold shoulder to the rest of the world. We have to have a greatness in terms of our generosity and our ability to recognize the dignity of the least of these that are there among us. David, I think that's a really good point and maybe a good place for us to end this segment. You know, when we invite all of our listeners to join us, not only in a spirit of prayer and to be mindful of our sisters and brothers who are struggling at the border and in other parts of the world, especially those from Haiti, but also to put our faith into action. As the letter of James reminds us, what good is it if we say we have faith but can't show it with our works? So let's get to it. Let's, I know we'll have in the show notes maybe links to network, the network lobby and, and others where Francis Action Network and the that, that can be avenues for putting faith into action. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here with David Dalt and Father Dan Horan. 
Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Today, we are especially excited to welcome a guest to the podcast, Christopher White. Chris White is the new Vatican correspondent at the National Catholic Reporter. After serving as the publication's national correspondent for a year, Chris moved to Rome this summer, spent a month in intensive Italian lessons, and last week started his new beat with a papal trip to Hungary and Slovakia. Pope Francis spent one day in Hungary speaking at the closing mass of the International Eucharistic Congress in Budapest before heading to the Eastern European country of Slovakia, where he spent three and a half days. He met with political and civic leaders and with ecumenical and interreligious leaders. He also met with members of the Roma community and spoke forcefully against the prejudice and discrimination they face. This was Francis's 34th international trip of his papacy and the first time traveling since he had colon surgery in July. Chris, before we get to the content of the Pope's speeches and his newsmaking comments about abortion, communion, and civil unions made during his papal press conference on the plane ride home, first, tell us how the Pope looked during this trip. Did he seem recovered from his surgery? At almost 85, he's not a young man. No, he's not. And first, let me just say it's great to be with all of you. And it's fun to come back from the trick, to be able to chat about it amongst friends. And I'm happy to report that the Pope seemed very well. Ahead of the trip, there was a lot of speculation, you know, could he do this? Could he keep up a rigorous and demanding schedule during these just, you know, six weeks after having half of his colon removed? And the the, the verdict is in. And in the words of one journalist on the flight back, he looked like a, an Olympian. He was really moving at breakneck speed, didn't seem to be slowed down in, in any real capacity. On the second day of the trip, he was in Slovakia, heading up the, this room's steep incline going into St. Martin's Cathedral in Bratislava. He did seem a bit slow going at that, but he's always walked, you know, with a, a bit of a, a hobble here and there. And Beyond that, he gave a few addresses seated, but he was full of energy out, you know, stopping the Pope Mobile, asking the guards to hand children to him. And so you saw a Pope who just seemed to be very happy to be back among the crowds and with people. And that's pretty much when he's at his best, when he's not sitting in some office and meeting with diplomats and curial officials, but amongst the people. He's the Pope of the people and seeing him in that element, he seemed very energized and happy to be there. How about you, Chris? Were you able to keep up with him? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's this strange thing. I, at the end of every day, I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. And members of the press corps, we'd all lament about how tiring our days were. And then we all we had to have a reality check that, you know, we're all a bit younger than this 84-year-old Pope and, and he's doing it at breakneck speed. So uh, we just have to try to keep up. So I want his energy if I make it to 84. Yeah. So during the trip, he touched on a lot of themes that he's spoken about before, political populism, Christian unity, the culture wars, prejudice, the power of the cross. You listened to and reported on all these speeches. What was your impression of his message and how was it received on the ground? I think this was in, in some ways the Pope's trip to Hungary and Slovakia countries that are recovering from the post-communist era. And he really came to, I think, give them a sense of encouragement to continue to be opening, welcoming societies, not to embrace nationalism that closes its doors, but to draw on their Christian heritage. These are both majority Catholic, majority Christian countries. And he said from the very first day in Hungary, he said, look at the cross. The arms of the cross are open. And this was in Viktor Orban's Hungary, Viktor Orban being the ultra-nationalist prime minister of, of Hungary, quite controversial. I, I'd say that you can't, uh, you couldn't find two world leaders almost that are at odds the way he and the Pope were at odds on so many issues. And here was the Pope sitting in a mass with Viktor Orban in the front row. The cross means welcoming and embracing others. Uh, he never used the word migrants directly, but it was certainly an undercurrent uh, of the Pope's entire trip and message while he was in Hungary. Orban, of course, has, you know, not just been unwelcoming to migrants, but used incredibly harsh and demeaning rhetoric 
when talking about, about migrants, saying that they are migrants are a Trojan horse coming into Europe and that it's his job as prime minister of Hungary to maintain traditional Christianity by keeping them out. And this is the Pope who has said the very opposite, saying it's Christian. <laughs> the Christian message means we have to welcome migrants in. And so that, that was a theme that sort of, you know, he set off day one saying that, and there were traces of that in every speech he gave. And I believe a total of 10 speeches over the course of three and a half days. 10 speeches, three public masses, very similar themes in all of them. Well, as is often the case, the Pope's comments on the ride home when he does a papal press conference with the news media like you who are there really made headlines. So the question was about pro-choice politicians and communion. And while he refused to specifically comment on the case of President Joe Biden here in the U.S., the Pope did say that he had never denied anyone the sacrament. He also really clearly reaffirmed that abortion is wrong, calling it homicide, but he urged church leaders to be pastoral instead of political. So some were confused by the Pope's words. It seems like they could be taken different ways. What did you take him to mean in his response to that question? I, I think if you understand what the Pope was saying there and, and read and listen to his words carefully, the essential message was this. Throughout the history of the church, it has never ended well when bishops and priests acted more like politicians than shepherds, than pastors. He repeated those words three or four times in his nearly 10 minutes response to the question about communion for pro-choice politicians. So I think one of the things that he was getting at, while well, again, as you mentioned, Heidi, not weighing in on the U.S. situation particularly, was, you know, the, the whole process when it comes to having a discussion of these questions about Catholic politicians and communion has to be dealt with on an individual case-by-case -case basis. And again, as pastors, he used the words closeness, compassion, and tenderness. Those were sort of his three words that he used as sort of guideposts on how, how to actually uh, address this question. And to me, it was a gentle critique, if you will, of the way the U.S. bishops have approached the question. Let's rewind the clock. Joe Biden was elected in November. Two weeks after that, the U.S. Bishops Conference president, Archbishop Jose Gomez, announces that he's going to have a, a working group to deal with the very specific question of Joe Biden's Catholicism. And it was the outcome of that working group that sort of created the circumstances that we're now in with the U.S. bishops looking to draft a document on the Eucharist. That was in the formal recommendations of this working group. And I think for the Pope, it's a head scratcher because he said, don't stray into politics. And this is an example. If you look at the, the just the process the U.S. bishops have used to go about this, it's been very political in nature. And we saw this last June when the bishops met. They couldn't get through a discussion about this document on the Eucharist without invoking the names Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. And I, I think with the Pope sort of ending his remarks, talking about his own experience of never denying communion, he's the shepherd of the Catholic Church, 1.3 billion Catholics. And if he's leading by example, there you have it, he's never denied communion. I think it's a great example. It's so important. I, I was so heartened to see that and to read your story and to see it across the wires as well. Because as, as a priest, as a Franciscan, I also have never denied communion to anybody. The kind of audacity to be in that situation, the kind of hubris has always struck me as very antithetical to pastoral ministry. And I don't mean that just as a touchy-feely way, but to the core of Christ's message in the gospel. Chris, I just have two follow-up questions. I'm, I'm curious. The first one is, it flows from my own experience of being very fortunate in my own ministry and work to travel around the world a lot. And I'm always struck by how folks in other countries are viewing the U.S. and the U.S. Catholic Church in particular. And I'm curious, on your first papal trip as a member of the Vatican Press Pool, what were your colleagues from other countries thinking about some of this conversation? So we know on the U.S. side, all the things you just very succinctly re reminded us of, the USCCB and this document and the politics and everything. What, what do other journalists, what, what do the other countries think about what's going on with the U.S. Church in the United States? Let me answer that by starting with explaining just how these questions come about on the papal plate. These questions are divided up and get asked by language groups. 
So the Italians get a question or several questions and the Germans and the Spanish and the French and the English. And then, of course, whatever language group from the journalist whose country we've just visited, they get to ask the first questions. So we started off with Hungarians and Slovakians asking questions. And if you look at the stories written by my colleagues in the Italian press or in the Spanish language press, none of them really led with the communion wars. That wasn't so much news to them. And it's because I did this piece for HCR back in June or perhaps May. It all runs together at this point. And these sort of communion wars are just such a U.S. issue. And it really doesn't strike a chord with folks in other countries because it's just such a strange, particular debate. And so when we were having discussions amongst ourselves as colleagues talking about the questions that each language group wanted to get out there, I think they certainly understood why we saw this as an important question to ask because it's particular to our own context and important uh, in American Catholic life at the moment. But most people in this conservatives and progressives alike from other countries just scratch their head. They're kind of baffled by the fact that so much air and energy is dedicated to this question and debates that just isn't going on anywhere else. So I'd say that for starters. And the other thing, it is a reminder when all these questions get lumped together and pulled and we're getting ready to have these press conferences with the Pope that In the U.S. church, there's this sort of sense that we're the dominant story. And these press conferences are a chance for other themes to emerge and to provide a snapshot of a global church where, you know, the fact that we have our second Catholic president and there's a a question about his political support for abortion isn't something that a lot of Catholics in the world are that interested in. Uh, And it's it's also a a good reminder that uh, perhaps we should be a bit more humble when we think about what really is Catholic news around the world. That's such a good point. It reminds me of you know countries like Brazil and Mexico. Of course, they're dealing with the questions of legalization around the, the issue of abortion these days as well, or even Ireland. They are much, much more explicitly Catholic countries that have dealt with far more seemingly contentious issues. So yeah, I appreciate that point. We, and it's something that resonates, I think, with the three of us on the podcast, that the U.S. needs to know its role and embrace a kind of humility, especially when it comes to the church. Thanks, Chris. I, I want to follow up on that. And I really echo the call to American humility and to decenter American issues from the global church. That being said, I'm also aware that the Pope did speak about certain issues that are central to American Catholic discourse right now, including civil unions and gay marriage. Did we learn anything new there, Chris? Well, okay, so I, I may be a bit of a Debbie Downer when it comes to this discussion of civil unions. Let's rewind the clock again. Last spring, headlines were made. I think I got a New York Times push notification on my phone. Pope had come out in favor of civil unions, which he did in the context of uh, a documentary film that was made about this pontificate where the, the filmmaker, Russian filmmaker, had used clips from another a Mexican journalist uh, here in Rome an interview she did with the Pope about a year before that, in which the Pope voiced his support for civil unions. Now, that made a lot of news in this documentary, and I guess I understand why it made news, but that was nothing new in many respects. The Pope, as Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires in Argentina, had supported civil unions. Uh, He had given an interview two years prior uh, to this documentary film, with a Spanish language outlet in which he had voiced his support for civil unions there. And so it was a bit of a head scratcher for me to see him make such news with this documentary. You know, I thought a lot about this, and I think part of the reason why it did was because he was on camera saying it, and it added perhaps an extra emphasis to see and hear the Pope visibly back civil unions. Uh, And he also said some really beautiful things in that interview talking about everyone has a right to be a part of a family, which kind of gave it some, it punctuated his remarks a bit. Now, he reiterated that once more on this flight back uh, last week from Slovakia, saying, of course, I I support countries that will want to enact civil protections for gay couples. Uh, And he said they have to have protection and the right to security and inheritance was the other word he used there. And then he went on to, as he's done before, to say, but 
sacrament of marriage remains between a man and a woman. So for groups like, again, in the U.S. context, new ways, dignity, they see this as a mixed bag. They're happy to see the Pope continuing to push and back up his words in support of civil unions. There seems to be this gap still for the church's outreach to LGBTQ persons. So it's interesting to see him continue to say this. I don't think that news made as much headlines this time because we've already gone through that just a few months ago. Yeah, I want to follow up too with, again, back to this global perspective that I think you have a unique entrance into as a member of the Vatican press pool. And that is, I wrote a column over the summer that highlighted some of the ways in which in Western Africa, by way of example, there are bishops and bishops' conferences that are in collusion with civil governments that overtly discriminate and Ill- criminalize basically LGBTQ identities. And the idea of a civil union is still so many steps removed. I'm also thinking papal visit took place in Eastern Europe. And there are countries like Poland and Russia and others where there are similar forms of discrimination and violence against LGBTQ plus folks. Is there any sense from your perspective with an international lens that questions like this resonate in other ways? You know, David brought up in the U.S. context, this is, again, a contentious issue here, but in many ways, we at least have the civil protections, for now at least, for LGBTQ folks. But in in other parts of the world, this is a real life or death issue, right? Yeah, it's interesting that these remarks did come after spending seven hours in Hungary, in which we've seen Prime Minister Orban's government uh, move to strip LGBT persons from a number of protections. They're constantly doing battle, if you will, with the EU over this particular issue. And so I think that is one way in which it could have been in the back of the Pope's mind to reiterate his support for civil unions here. But you're right. He, He said this coming back from Hungary, right next door to Poland and the Ukraine, uh, where, of course, this is a very marginalized community where lives are at risk. Uh, so that, that is a very helpful international perspective that hasn't really been brought to this issue. Chris, what, what do you see uh, next on your beat coming up this fall? There's a couple more papal trips planned. We talked earlier about the Sonoto process. What are some of your thoughts about what's next on your new beat? I, I think that the synodal process is going to take, and it's already taken center stage. At the beginning of October, we're having the official launch, which will start on a Saturday in Rome, in which the Pope will meet with various Senate delegates from various commissions and committees here in Rome. In the Synod Hall, the very space where the Synod will take place in 2023, and the Pope will offer some reflections about his hopes for that process. And then he will formally open the Senate the following day with a big mass in St. Peter's Square. I'm curious even of just the symbolism of this, because this will, assuming everything goes according to plan, be one of the first big public liturgies that Pope has celebrated in Rome, in St. Peter's, in, in the height of the, the coronavirus that pandemic. Because let's remember, Christmas was scaled down, Easter has been scaled down, and here we have the Pope having a big, big public maps to kick off the Senate. I think it shows his commitment to this process. And then we're going to be looking not just here in Rome, but how the Senate process, which the hopes of engaging every single Catholic diocese and then bishops conference and then the continental levels around the world, how they're engaged, where we're seeing progress and forward motion and where we're seeing resistance to that progress. So I'm very curious about that. I spent some time this morning on a press call with uh, the folks in Australia who are kicking off their own plenary council process, which I think a lot of Catholic observers are keen to see how that plays out there. So the Senate front and center, Pope's got a busy uh, schedule. He intends, these are all not officially confirmed by the Vatican yet, but of course he plans to travel to Glasgow, Scotland in November to sort of really, I would say, continue in the work that he began with the release of Laudato Sea ahead of the Paris Climate Summit in 2015. Uh, you know, EU leaders were really looking to him to put that encyclical out into the world before they met for the Paris Climate Accords because they knew his voice mattered. And then you have him now going to Glasgow to address the, the UN Climate Summit. It's a pretty big deal that he will be there. And he's made it clear that this he will be going for that purpose. And the bishops of Scotland have said he, he won't be meeting with us. He won't be doing the public mass. Like this will be very um, 
much him kind of putting his thumb on the scales of that conference. He's looking to, at some point, go to Lebanon following the awful explosions and devastations in Lebanon last summer. He promised that people visit to that country. They've been in political turmoil, and he has said he didn't want to go until a government was formed. Just two weeks ago, a government was formed. It's a precarious situation. So we will see when that trip happens. We're hearing rumors that there are Vatican delegations that have gone to Lebanon to kind of see if that may take place sometime soon. Uh, And then it looks like in the beginning of uh, December, he'll also go for a a much anticipated trip to to Cyprus. Of course, very divided country between uh, Cyprus and Turks there. So we'll see. This is a, a pope that we're seeing these I refer to them as popcorn trips. They're like one, two night, quick little trips here and there. I think it reflects an aging Pope, but someone who still fears it. So it's very much in a hurry. And we know how happy it is outside of the Vatican. And so I think that's part of the reason why this calendar is filling back up. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us uh, today and for uh, all your insights about the beat. I hope we can have you back again soon and good luck to you there in Rome. I will happily join anytime. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.